Well, Christian, have you found yourself lately repeating the same old sin that you've been pestered by in the past? Maybe that's getting angry. Getting angry while driving around town, you sit in rush hour traffic, you're late to work or late to an appointment, and you get upset with the many wonderful drivers in the Queen City. They may not hear what you're saying, but the Lord does, right? We, maybe you've been convicted of that, rightly so. And yet you find yourself in the car again, committing the same old sin. Maybe it's getting angry with your kids. Maybe it's, it's, you're not angry over their sin, but you're angry because they're disrupting your peace and quiet, and they're getting on your nerves. And you've found yourself in the past losing your temper, yelling at them, rightly feeling convicted about that, praying and asking God for His forgiveness, asking forgiveness for your kids, thinking to yourself, I don't want to do this again. In a week or two weeks past, things are going well, and then you find yourself right back in the situation, committing the same sin. But I wonder what that old sin is for you. Maybe it's growing anxious and not trusting God to provide financially for you. Maybe you felt that way and you look back and God's always provided. When has He never provided what you need? But then you find yourself just falling right back into that anxious moment of not trusting Him and feeling like you have to take things in your own hands. Maybe it's neglecting time and the Bible and prayer. Maybe a new year comes and you Think in your mind, it's not going to be like last year. Things are going to change, and things look good in January, and here comes February, and it's kind of right back to the old same rut of moving on about your day and not spending time with the Lord. Maybe it's looking at ungodly content on your phone. Maybe a year's passed since you've done that. Here comes a holiday, some downtime, and not near the busy schedule, and you give in to temptation. Well, whatever that sin is that pesters you, The heart behind it reveals a need to grow in fearing the Lord, looking to Him. Understand that God sees and knows and and understands everything. Understand that God is the one who's full of power and love and grace. He provides for His people. We're told in the book of Proverbs, it really is the main message of the book of Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So brothers and sisters, if we're going to learn how to grow in honoring God, we've got to grow in fearing the Lord. Today we look at Genesis chapter 20. We see the life of Abraham. And we see Abraham falling back into the same old sin that he had previously committed at the beginning of his walk with the Lord. And for Abraham, he didn't trust God's providence. He struggled to fear the Lord and he feared people instead. And he repeated the same old sin ending up in the same old mess. Let's look at Genesis chapter 20 this morning. If you want to take that pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 14 in the pew Bible there in Genesis. And uh, if you come this morning, you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. We'd love to uh, give that to you for you to read more about who God is and what He's done in Christ there in in the Bible. Well, I'm going to read through all of Genesis chapter 20 as we begin our time together. Uh, If I could turn my volume up just a little bit, just a hair, if you could turn my volume up a little bit on the microphone, I would appreciate that. Genesis chapter 20, let me read through all of the chapter here. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kedesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought... There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, we've spent the entire fall thinking through the life of really one man, of Abraham. That's where we've been in, in the book of Genesis, tracking along his life. And the story of Abraham, we understand that he stands out for his faith. He's commended in both the Old Testament and the New Testament for his faith in the Lord. But you might read a, a chapter like this and think, well, this is what faith looks like. I mean, he made it into Hebrews chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith. And then you see scenes like this of fear and failure, and it may be hard to understand. Well, this is really what faith looks like? Well, I think what we have in the book of Genesis is a realistic picture of a believer who indeed trusts God and trusts his promises, and I think we can relate to him as Christians that far too often we find ourselves struggling to trust God, struggling with fear, with fearing people, failing, failing to obey God and to honor him in what we do. For Abraham, we see that he did not trust God's providence. He fell into a trap of fearing people rather than fearing God, and once again he found himself in a mess, a mess that he'd already been in before. Well, as we consider his life, we should think about our own lives as, as Christians. What it looks like for believers to persevere by God's grace through fear and through failure. As we read this story in Genesis, as God's people, we can find comfort. Comfort not in our own faith, 
but comfort in God's faithfulness. God's provision is grace to protect His people. He makes promises, and He keeps all of His promises. Well, as we look at Genesis chapter 20 this morning, I want you to see this main idea. If you're taking down notes, you can write this down. The main idea of Genesis chapter 20 is this. We must persevere in fearing God, for nothing can stop His plans. We must persevere in fearing God, for nothing can stop His plans. That was Abraham's trouble. He didn't believe God's plans. He, in the moment, got caught up in fearing the people around him rather than fearing God. And his steps of disobedience seemingly put in jeopardy the promise that God had delivered to him. Well, as we make our way through this passage this morning, I want you to see three ways that we must walk in the fear of the Lord. Three ways that we must walk in the fear of the Lord. And the first way is there in verses 1 through 7. Fear God rather than people. It's the first way we must walk in the fear of the Lord in verses 1 through 7. Fear God rather than people. Well, Abraham had received a covenant promise from the Lord that he would receive land. He'd already received that promise, but he had not yet received that land. And so he was a, a sojourner. He was traveling around the land. And in verse 1, we see that he was journeying through the land of Canaan, and he, he ended up traveling through Gerar, which was in the southeast part of the land, a land that would later become a possession of the nation of Israel. And very quickly, we read in verse 2 that when Abraham arrived there, he said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And now, wait a minute. You might have thought, didn't we hear this before? Well, yeah, back in chapter 12, uh, when they fled a famine and they went down to Egypt, and Abraham became afraid in Egypt that he would be killed and that his wife would be taken by Pharaoh. He lied back then and said that Sarah was his sister. Kind of the same old story, same old sin, different place, different king here in verse 2. He didn't trust God's protection. He didn't trust God's provision. And once again here in chapter 20, Abraham's failure, his fear, it led to a mess. Again, his faith was tested, and again he failed. He repeated the same old sin that he had committed back in, in Egypt. And just like what happened back in Egypt when Pharaoh took Sarah, here in chapter 20, King Abimelech, the Philistine king, took Sarah, his wife. Now consider that Abraham's fear, it didn't line up with the truth of God's Word. And I think we can relate to that in our fears. How often do we find ourselves fearing something that doesn't line up with the truth of God's Word. You see, fear, it often lies to us about the future. We've thought about this before. The, the fear, what it does, it imagines a future where God won't provide for us. Fear looks forward and it imagines a future where, where God's not going to deliver for us. It anticipates God not being faithful to His promises. Well, not only did Abraham's fear not line up with God's Word, but his fear was actually the opposite of what God's Word said, meaning his, his fear directly opposed the promise of God's Word that was given to him. So think about all that the Lord said to Abraham since we lost, last saw this similar episode in chapter 12. Well, in chapter 15, that's where we saw the Lord ratify this covenant with Abraham. He was assuring Abraham's 
faith and through sacrifice, assuring Abraham, you can be confident, I'm going to deliver to you what I've promised to give you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants. In chapter 17, the Lord himself appeared to Abraham. And then later in chapter 18, he appeared to Abraham and to his wife Sarah to confirm covenant promises. He gave them new names as confirmation of that. Abraham, a father of a multitude. Sarah, from you princes are going to come. He gave them a new sign, the the sign of, of circumcision, a constant reminder that God was going to provide descendants and a son, a regular reminder of God's faithfulness to his promises. And God had specifically told them that in about a year, Sarah was going to give birth to a son. They didn't even have to think about a name. They didn't have to even debate which name they were going to go with. God gave them the name, saying his name is going to be Isaac. You see, God was just so gracious to regularly assure Abraham and Sarah of all that he had promised them. And in fact, where we're at in the story of Genesis, we are almost to the birth of Isaac. Spoiler alert, chapter 21, we see Isaac born. They had waited for so long for the fulfillment of this promise. And before we get to Isaac being given to them, we have chapter 20. So they were on the verge of receiving the promise of this child. And here in this chapter, in chapter 20, they did something that left to themselves, placed it all in jeopardy. Well, Abraham had been walking with God for years. He had seen the Lord rescue him out of this very situation before. And here we see him relapsing back into the same old sin. We've seen him believe and trust, and we've seen him fail. Abraham did indeed believe God, yet he repeatedly struggled with fear in this particular area. And I think we're just like Abraham. We don't need greater promises from God. We need greater faith. We need our strength to be, we need our faith to be strengthened this Morning, But also, I think we can be comforted as we look at the story of Abraham. Look at what happened when his faith failed. The Lord held him fast. Verse 3, it's another place in the Bible we see this phrase, but God. When you read this phrase, but God, which is all throughout the Scriptures, in fact, I've got a sign of it painted in my office. I've shared this with you before. You might have even seen the baptism pictures. Uh, of, of the Lord's work, Ephesians chapter 2, we see that, that God is the one who's made us alive in Christ. And here we find in verse 3 of chapter 20, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. When you read that phrase, but God, it's a phrase of hope. It's a reminder of there is one who never fails. Abraham, he acted in a way that was faithless, but God was faithful. And again, it reinforces to us the main character in the book of Genesis, God. God's the one who's always at work, showing himself faithful to his promise. Now, now Abraham failed to learn his lesson from chapter 12, but God was faithful He would not let Abraham's failure undo what he had promised. And God intervened in this mess, and he made sure that Sarah would not be touched. Now, what we read in verses 3 through 7, it's almost like a court trial. So so God charged Abimelech with taking another man's wife, and God told him, you are going to die for doing that. 
That's a pretty strict sentence right there, right? He's saying you took another man's wife, that's the charge, and the penalty is going to be from God himself, you're going to die for doing that. And we should understand that while this was God speaking to Abimelech in that moment, it communicates a greater truth that I think bears upon all people. We see later revealed in the Old Testament that adultery indeed, just like it's revealed here, is a grave offense. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, in the Old Testament law, we see that adultery was punishable by death. Now, God's people knew that, but we see even here that in the ancient world and pagan societies like the Philistines there in Gerar, adultery was not known as acceptable among them. It was widely considered culturally as a great offense. Now, we read later on in verse 9 that Abimelech understood that adultery was a great sin. It's a pagan king talking there. Well, with God's intervention in the situation, the Lord pronouncing the punishment of death, again, I think there's something greater we have to understand here. There is a warning here for all generations about adultery. We see that, that adultery is not just a sin against your spouse. It offends God. God created marriage. It's His invention. It's His gift to humanity, but He created marriage. It's His design. It's for His plan. It's for His purposes, and we do not get to change that, and we should not want to change that. You see, marriage reveals something about God and what He's done in Jesus Christ. We read later on in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 that God's plan and purpose in marriage is to show His love for His people, and that Jesus Christ indeed did that by laying His life down to die for His bride, the church. So there's something very holy about marriage, and we see the sanctity of marriage upheld by God here. It's not just a sin against your spouse if you commit adultery. It's a serious sin against God, and He indeed will judge and punish those who do not repent of adultery. You see, we live in a society that increasingly is okay with adultery, that if you somehow fall out of love with your spouse 10 or 15 years later, well, then just leave and find someone else. But God's people know better than that. God's people know that that is sinful and wrong and that it dishonors God. You see, adultery, it destroys a marriage. Adultery destroys a home, a family, children. Well, I'm pausing here for a moment because we need to be clear as God's people, it is a very serious and destructive sin. And whoever commits this sin must repent and trust in Jesus, or else face the judgment of God. Well, as a church, I think we should commit to, whether regardless of your, your life stage, your marital status, I think we should all agree, we want to pray for marriages in this church. We want to pray for God's protection over the husbands and wives in this church. We want to pray for God to help us to walk in holiness and to strengthen husband and wife to walk in faithfulness to the vows that they made on their wedding day. Oh, Cursed Baptist Church, let's commit to praying for the many marriages here in our church. Well, God intervened there. He showed the charge. He showed the judgment, the punishment that awaited Abimelech. And while the Lord appeared to Abimelech there in a dream in the middle of the night, it clearly and immediately got the attention of Abimelech. That's worth noting. A pagan king heard the word of the Lord and immediately responded. A very different scene from what we saw last week in Sodom. 
Now, he offered up his defense in verses 4 and 5, saying first that he was innocent. So, Abimelech, he appealed to God's justice there in verse 4, asking the question, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now, it sounds very similar to what we heard in chapter 18 from Abraham. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's a question appealing to the character of God and appealing to His justice. Now, Abimelech pleaded that he had not touched Sarah, as well as defense was that Abraham and Sarah had both lied. They both deceived him and said that she was his sister. And so he pleaded in verse 5, in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. What he's saying is I wasn't conscious of this great sin, which was true. His claim of innocence, he didn't know the truth about Sarah being Abraham's wife. But, but even with that, Abimelech was not completely free of, of blame. For a sin had still been committed, he took another man's wife, and the judgment for sin we see, it still hung over him. He offered up his defense before the Lord, and the Lord, he did confirm the king's integrity, saying in verse 6, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. We read here that not only did, did God know that Abimelech was innocent, God knows everything. He knows heart, the heart and the motivation behind actions. He knows intentions of the heart. Not only is he omniscient, he's omnipotent. He knows everything, and he has all power. He's the one who kept Abimelech from touching Sarah. Now, it seems that God, he sent some sort of, of sickness upon Abimelech that kept him from physically being able to sleep with Sarah. We see later down in verse 17 that Abimelech himself needed to be healed. So it could have been that he was presently dying from a sickness that came upon him for taking another man's wife. And the Lord was warning him he would die of this sickness if he didn't end up returning Sarah to Abraham. Well, however it is that this came about, we see very clearly God was the one who intervened. God was the one who preserved Sarah. Now, consider the implications here that if Abimelech had had relations with Sarah, that would call into question in chapter 21, whose child is this? Is this Abraham's child or Abimelech's child? We see the birth of Isaac being the fulfillment of the promise of God. It is key to the story of the Old Testament and indeed the New Testament. So we understand the implications of what's at stake here. And we see in all of this what seemingly was put into jeopardy by their folly and their sin. What we do see clear is that God's sovereign grace is at work. God graciously intervened and preserved Abraham and Sarah to continue on and receive His promise. We see clearly that God is all-knowing and He is all-powerful. His hands are never tied. God controls even the hearts and minds of pagan kings. We may often find ourselves in situations that are out of our control, we may often find ourselves suffering and in a mess because of our own sin and our own folly. But we can trust as God's people, He is always in control. He rules over every situation. 
He's sovereign over every failure of ours, meaning that His hands are not tied over our failure, over our sin. Nothing can get in His way. Nothing can stop His plans, not even our sin, not even our unfaithfulness, not even our folly. And this should bring us great comfort as God's people. He preserves us even through our failures. Now, God made His judgment known. Abimelech, you've got to return Sarah to her husband. If you do not, you and your household will suffer the judgment of death. It was a moment of of testing Abimelech's sincerity. Was he truly sorry for what he had done? He was offered a chance to repent. He was offered a chance between life and death. But with all that happened here in this scene, again, brother and sister, we we can see that nothing can stand in the way of God accomplishing his plans. Abraham and Sarah, their unfaithfulness did not stand in the way. A pagan king would not stand in the way. Nothing can stand in the way of God's plans for his people. Your fear, your failures will not stand in the way. God is faithful to preserve his people to accomplish his plan in their lives. We see time and time again in the life of Abraham God's grace and blessing Abraham, even as he walked in fear. Let's be clear, his fear was wrong. His fear did not please God. But let's also be clear, his fear did not take him out of God's favor. That should give us confidence that God will not forsake us. He's demonstrated that ultimately through his son Jesus, who has promised to everyone. In Matthew chapter 28, if you put your faith in Jesus, He is with you always, even to the end of the age, that God has given us, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, He's given us the fullness of His Holy Spirit, placed inside of us as a guarantee, as a down payment, as it were, that we belong to God and He will see to it. He will close the deal at the end. We will be with Him now and forevermore. Left to himself, Abraham, he would walk in fear and failure, but God was faithful to protect him and to preserve his family. Abraham kept acting out of fear, but God, he kept acting out of faithfulness to his promise. God makes promises and he keeps them, period. Was the nation of Israel heard their history in Abraham? Because that's what was happening here. Moses, the narrator of Genesis, recounting to them their history in Abraham. It would have brought them comfort. Their God is, is faithful. Left to themselves, they would wander in fear and failure, even there in the wilderness. But God Himself would see to it that His plan and His purposes are accomplished. And may we be encouraged this morning as God's people in the new covenant, the the local church, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, already receiving the promise in Jesus Christ of salvation and forgiveness of sins, yet not home to be with the Lord. You see, we're on our own sojourning, traveling around this life as aliens and strangers in this present world. And far too often in our sojourning, we find ourselves living out of fear. And far too often in our sojourning and our traveling this side of glory, we find ourselves failing to obey God, failing to live in light of what we know to be true, uh, committing those same old sins and finding ourselves right back in the place of folly. Well, brother and sister, the assurance I think we see in this passage is found not in the strength of our faith, 
but our assurance is found in God's faithfulness. What that means is that our assurance is not found in the intensity of our faith, which far too often can ebb and flow. Our assurance is found in God's faithfulness, His character, who He is, and what He has done. Our faith rests in Jesus. What's so great about the Christian life is not our faith. It's the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. We trust in Him. Therefore, by God's grace, we belong to Him. Our faith rests in who He is, not in who we are in and of ourselves. Our faith rests in what He's done, not in what we have done. You see, through His death on the cross to pay for sin and His resurrection from the dead three days later, Jesus Christ has secured salvation for all who trust in Him. It's the security we need to be reminded of every single Sunday. I say this a lot, but I think it's important to remember why we meet on Sunday morning. It's the morning that Jesus got up from the dead. It's the morning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the morning we're reminded of the mercy and the forgiveness of sins and the free righteousness before the throne of God that is given to all of those who repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's the good news we need to hear this morning that not just has saved us, Christian, but the good news that promises us we will be sustained and preserved by God's grace until the end. The story of our life, Christian, is just like the story of Abraham, that God Himself will preserve us through our fear and our failures. He is far more committed to our Christian growth than we are. He is far more committed to our holiness than we are. He is far more committed to our obedience to Him than we are. And He gently corrects us and guides us and shepherds us until we are finally well, let's consider a second way we must walk in the fear of the Lord. We see this in verses 8 through 16. Fear God and be quick to repent of sin. Fear God and be quick to repent of sin. This section of the story shows how Abimelech sought to make things right. So even though he was initially unaware of the wrong he had done and taking a man's wife, he thought this really was Abraham's sister like they told him, but still he was not without blame. He needed to act and to make things right in order to satisfy God and to live. And we read in verse 8 that Abimelech, he had a sense of urgency to make things right. Again, we didn't see this in Sodom. We didn't even see this out of Lot, the one righteous one. He, he kind of hesitated to obey God. What we see here with a pagan king in verse 8, he has this sense of urgency, heard God's word, and was ready to make things right. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Now keep in mind, Abraham was the righteous one in this story. Uh, Abimelech, the pagan king. And what's interesting in this interaction is that Abimelech is the one who's fearing God. and Abraham is the one who's fearing people. Uh, Abimelech comes off uh, appearing to even be more righteous than Abraham in the moment. Uh, Abimelech, even in the midst of his confession of sin, rebukes Abraham. It's a surprising scene. Look at verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that you ought not, that ought not to be done. 
Then Abimelech said, Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Now, Abraham walked in fear, and that led him to unfaithfulness. He feared the people in Gerar. His fear assumed the worst about that situation. It assumed the worst about them, and it ended up not actually being true. I mean, it turned out, again, these people were not like the people of Sodom. When God appeared to their king, they responded in fear. They were ready to do what God commanded. Now, consider if Abraham, if he had chosen to fear God instead of people there in that moment. If he made the decision to live among them as a righteous man among the unrighteous, how might that have made a difference? Again, God had already promised to Abraham. He changed his name to confirm the promise that Abraham would be made a father of a multitude of nations. And here was an opportunity a chance to go live among a nation as a righteous one, bearing witness to God and pointing them to the Lord. But rather than bearing witness, he walked in fear and he hid. You see, Abram's response to Abimelech, it was pretty weak. He offered up really a a weak excuse in verse 12 that Sarah was his sister, which really was a half-truth, which by implication was deception. I mean, she was his half-sister, the the daughter of his father. Now, some scholars even debate, was this indeed they shared the same father? Because the term father could also mean something like grandfather. We just know clearly at some level they were related, but not in the way that he was presenting her. Like, that wasn't his sister there in that moment. So, his omission of the whole truth was a, a lie by implication. Now, Abraham, he had other options besides lying. He could have sought out the Lord's protection in the moment. I mean, he'd already been promised God's divine protection. Uh, While traveling there, he could have trusted that the one who had already promised him protection, the one who had already promised him that a son would soon be born to him, and Sarah, that this same God would protect him and his wife and sustain them until the day of fulfillment. Now, based on what we read on verse 13, in verse 13, this deception had become a, a common practice when they traveled, that to secure his protection wherever they went, that he was asking Sarah, go ahead and just lie and say that you're my sister so that it would go well with us, which is showing us that he was repeatedly falling back into walking by sight, leading his wife back into walking by sight, living fearfully and in a deceptive plan. And even though Abraham's deception started this entire scene, Abimelech still needed to do what was right. In verses 14 through 16, Abimelech paid restitution. So in that days, paying a a large sum was a form of public atonement for a wrong that had been committed. So in addition to returning Sarah to Abraham, look at what happens. Abimelech also paid the restitution of possessions coming in the form of servants and animals. In verse 15, Abimelech gave Abraham the pick of where he'd want to dwell in the land. Now, this wasn't giving him the land as a possession, but it was saying, like, you can stay and dwell wherever you want, which what that would have done, it would have removed the status as kind of alien in the land, but rather given him permission to stay there and dwell as long as he would want 
to dwell. In verse 16, Abimelech told Sarah that he had given your brother, which may have been a slight rebuke in the moment, yet at the same time, he says, I'm giving, I gave him a thousand pieces of silver. And to put this into perspective, a, a dowry price back in the day, it would have been at most 50 shekels. This payment of restitution was 20 times that. Abimelech made it clear this payment was intended to preserve Sarah's honor. In verse 16, he, when he read it and when he said that these 1,000 pieces of silver, they were a sign of her innocence and in the eyes of all who were with her so that she would be vindicated in the eyes of those around her. This gift and this statement there in verse 16, it left no doubt. Again, when we get to the next chapter of Genesis, Isaac is the son of Abraham. God kept his promise. Well, these narratives, they show us in history what God was like to, to Abraham. God was faithful to his promise. Nothing could stop his plans from being accomplished. God's grace was visible all along the way in the life of Abraham. He wasn't worthy of all that he had just received there in chapter 20. All the possessions he received when he came out of Egypt, he wasn't worthy. They were all a result of his failure and his sin. And we just see the Lord graciously providing for him, even in spite of his failure and his fear. He struggled with fear. He fell into failure. And God was gracious to rescue him again and again, lavishing his riches of kindness upon him. You see, God was like this to Abraham, and God's like this to his people today. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Romans is referred to often as the greatest letter ever written, and chapter 8, one of the most beautiful chapters, I think, in all of the Scripture. And Romans 8, 32 tells us this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? The logic of Romans chapter 8 is what we see in the story of Abraham. God has given us his promises. What more can he give? He's given us his promises. And those people in the New Testament, the new covenant people of God, he's already given us his son, Jesus. We saw what Abraham longed to see. The birth of the Messiah, him laying his life down to die on the cross and make atonement for the sin of people against God. God gloriously raising Jesus from the dead three days later as proof that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's the Son of God, that in him there is forgiveness for sins for any who would repent of their sin and trust in him. What more can he give us than what he's already given us? You see, God's given his people the church, the greatest gift we could possibly receive, Himself, Jesus, the Son of God, full and final forgiveness if we would trust in Him. So if we start and we look back at the cross, these daily needs we have are such a small thing compared to the gift we've already been given. It feels like a big thing often in our lives. When we struggle with physical challenges, that's not a small thing, it's a big thing in our life. When we struggle wondering how to pay the bills, that's a big moment we feel in our lives. It's a weight of pressure and responsibility we often feel on our shoulders. But put that need, put that anxiety, put that fear in perspective of the gift we've already received at the cross. 
the one who gave us Jesus, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things, meaning everything we need for life and for godliness, we can trust God. Brother and sister, may we look at this story and understand this is just who our God is. This is who he was to Abraham, and this is who he is to all who have put their faith in Jesus. Let's consider finally a third way we must fear God in verses 17 through 18. Fear God and seek restoration with Him. Fear God and seek restoration with Him. Earlier in verse 7, the Lord had instructed Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham and to have Abraham pray for him so that he would live. And we skipped over this in verse 7, but I want to come back to it now. In verse 7, that's the first place in the Bible that we find the word prophet. And I think there's a, probably a wider meaning here that Abraham, this, I don't think this was necessarily the beginning of the office, it may have been, but I think what this is communicating, this is God's chosen servant. This is one who is walking close to Him. And as the chosen one by God to be a blessing to the nations, Abraham was a mediator to bless the nations. Verse 17, we find Abraham playing that role of mediator. He is praying for Abimelech, that God would save him from death. Now, previously, Abraham had interceded for Lot as Sodom was set to be destroyed by God, so we've seen him playing this role of mediator already before. Uh, here he is praying for Abimelech and for his household to be saved from death. In verse 17 and 18, look at what God did when Abraham prayed. God healed Abimelech of his sickness, and God also healed his wife, and the female slaves there, the servants, that God had closed their wombs as punishment for taking Sarah, which is a side note that may make us understand here that Sarah had been with Abimelech there for some time. You see, God is the one who opens and closes the womb. He closed their wombs, and once again he was, in response to Abraham's prayer, opening their wombs. God did all of this when Abraham which is another side note, this is the first occasion in the Bible of God healing in response to intercessory prayer. Abraham, the chosen mediator for God to bless the nations. While the story of Abraham calls us as God's people to, to greater faith, while his story calls us to walk in the fear of the Lord, this story, again, should comfort God's people in His sovereign grace. He, he makes promises and He sees to it that His promises are fulfilled. Nothing can stop His plan, not, not even your sin. His plans will be accomplished, even as His people fail to trust Him, and even as His people seem to get in the way sometimes. God is not stopped. God is not slowed down. All that He has decreed will indeed come to pass and as God's people, we should pray for His strength regularly to persevere in fearing Him. You see, there's a call here to trust in God's sovereignty. That should bring us comfort. We should revel in the sovereignty and the love and the power of our God. It certainly doesn't remove human responsibility. They go together. God is sovereign and at work, and therefore, as His people, we must fear Him. We must walk in reverence and awe before Him. We should seek to walk in obedience to His commands. 
We should ask God to strengthen us that we would repent quickly from sins we have committed against Him. And one of the most important prayers you can pray every day is for God to strengthen you to walk spiritually before Him, for spiritual strength to run the race. As we study the life of Abraham, we've got a few more weeks of doing that. We're going to move on to Isaac and then Jacob finishing out the the spring and into the summer. But as we track with the life of Abraham, we see that his faith so often, it would fail and there were failures along the way. I think there's a question we should ask ourselves, Christian. When you feel that your faith will fail, when you feel gripped by fear or failure, what should you do? I think it's what we sang earlier. Remember God, the one who holds you fast. When your faith will fail, He will hold you fast. Turning away from your sin, He's right there. He's right there, ready to reconcile with you, to strengthen you, to walk in the fear of the Lord. I leave you with the words of Romans chapter 8 once again. In verse 38, we find some wonderful promises from the Lord of how we can trust the power and the love of God to hold us fast. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We put our trust in Jesus Christ the one who holds us fast. And we close our time out this morning singing the truth of the gospel. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Let's pray.